Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Here on Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. If you're going to introduce a label from a new region, you better have some street creds because there's so many new labels popping up. The STEM participation for us is a means of, of corseting some of that generosity. It kind of it corrals it, it frames it. For me, anything that's round and rich in life, like, you know, it's like a sear on a jumbo scallop or a piece of ahi or a little brush of soy on, you know, on a piece of nigiri in a sushi bar, it frames something that's softer and rounder. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Project Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's September 2023 issue. Our cover story features the Martinelli family, Sonoma grape-growing pioneers whose prestige vineyards include Blue Slide Ridge for Pinot Noir and Jackass Hill for Zinfandel. The issue also includes my annual California Pinot Noir tasting report, plus my colleague Kristen Bieler's report on Austrian wine. It's a Pinot-heavy issue for sure, but that's fine, because it gives me a chance to dive into one of my favorite subjects here on Straight Talk. To help us sort through the current California Pinot Noir scene, we've got two of the state's best Pinot Noir winemakers joining us, Mark Obear of Obear Wines and Santa Barbara's Greg Brewer of Brewer Clifton. We've also got a little bonus content as a companion to this episode. More on that later. But right now, it's time to check in with podcast director Rob Taylor. Welcome back, Rob. Thanks, James. Uh, before we get started... The big guy wants to know if you've finished your Cabernet report. I did make yet another deadline <laughs> with my Cabernet report. Thanks for reminding me, Rob. Um, this is the 2020 vintage Cabernet report, and I'm calling it the Janus vintage. Uh, there are two very different sides to this vintage based on the very few producers who released a wine and the many, many others who skipped the vintage entirely. Now, in 2020, the wildfires played a headlining role. Smoke taint was a problem. The, the timing right at the end of harvest was a real problem. A lot of grapes were left unpicked. Some people made their wines and poured it down the drain. But even without the wildfires, the vintage had excessive heat, and that that heat just never let up. And both of those influences have marked this vintage dramatically. The wines do have a very distinct edge to them. I've tasted less than 150 wines from 2020 in Cabernet so far, and that's compared to the typical six to 800 that I would have tasted by now. So in the end, there is not a lot of wine in this vintage, but there is a lot to talk about. And that will all be in the November 15th issue, as always. I'm looking forward to reading that for sure, but while we wait, your California Pinot Noir report is right here in the September issue. Give us the broad strokes. Yes, I made that deadline as well, Rob. Thanks for for commenting on that. Uh, There were about 550 wines in the current Pinot Noir report. Now, there's always a cross-cut of vintages in our annual tasting reports since they're based on the previous 12 months of tastings, but this year's report focuses on the 2021 vintage. We've moved past that now with Pinot. We moved past 2020 and that wildfire season. And there's a lot of good news in 2021. I found that they have the the purity and drive of their 2019 counterparts, which I thought was a fantastic vintage. Um, but they're also a step up in concentration, structure, and definition. Now, the season was marked by a considerable drought that resulted in a crop of thick-skinned small berries. It was warm, but it was not hot, so the grapes retained their acidity and their freshness. And the harvest period was smooth sailing. No fires, no nothing to worry about. End result, quality very, very high. It's a new benchmark for the category downside the drought means that yields are down those smaller berries give less juice 10 to 15 percent across the board easily some producers are down 50 percent so you might have to hustle to get the wines you want i bet uh sounds like a good one though and i have just one quick programming note for our listeners 
You're probably going to hear James and his guests talking about clones in this episode. So for anyone with a confused look on their face, I'll be asking Dr. Vinny for an explainer a little later. And for our Pinot Noir-loving website members, I'm giving a strong recommend for James's recent web column on Steve Kistler's Occidental Wines Project. It's a great read about a legendary winemaker who is nowhere near finished making his mark. Yeah, Mr. Kistler is, of course, known for his Chardonnays that he produced at his namesake winery for a couple of decades. But he moved on from there in 2017 and set up shop further west in the hills around Occidental. He's now focusing fully on Pinot Noir, and he's been joined by his daughter, Catherine. Even at age 76, he's still plowing ahead. He sees this far western coast area as an exciting new final frontier for Pinot Noir. And I got to say, his wines are backing up this theory. And you know who else is in on the Sonoma Coast action? That's Marco Bear. He's a man who needs no introduction in wine circles, but I'll give him one anyway. The Northern California native got his start making Cabernet at some of Napa's most prestigious wineries, including Peter Michael, Colgan, Bryant Family, and others. He then founded his namesake, Aubert Wines, with his wife, Teresa, in 1999, focusing on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. One of his Chardonnays hit our top 10 in the 2018 list, and one of his Pinots landed at number two on our 2020 list. So he's a player. Let's take a listen to some of the excerpts from my interview with Marco Bear. Our next guest is a California native who was probably always destined to be a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay winemaker. I was reading my late colleague Kim Marcus's profile on you, Mark, from 2018, in which you noted you took your then-wife-to-be on your first date with a bottle of Louis Latour Batard Montrachet, and you later had an epiphany over a bottle of Comte Lafon Montrachet. And I like that you think big. Marco Bear, welcome to Straight Talk. How are you doing? Thank you, James. So good to be here. I think it's safe to say that the, the category over the last 20 years has really come into its own. And I think it's interesting that you set up shop just about two decades ago with Pinot, whereas Cabernet has been the sort of long, slow, inexorable rise in Napa. Pinot is kind of a rocket ship. Do you see it continuing to move super fast at this point, the category? I would say the rocket is got a lot of fuel in the tanks, but it seems like it's maybe hit a trajectory that's starting to level off. I mean, 20 years ago, you couldn't find Pinot Noir growing. You couldn't, if you were an aspiring winemaker, wanting to get your label started, it was very hard to find Pinot. Mm -hmm. Now it's a lot easier to find it. And on the reverse, a Chardonnay is very hard to find. Is there room to grow? Or I I was talking with Paul Hobbs recently, he feels like the map is drawn, but there's places to move. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, There's still some very interesting untapped regions, I think, in uh, Sonoma Coast, uh, there's new AVAs seem like they're being investigated now. Um, you know, starting your own brand in, in today's climate is very difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine starting out like we did. We started with 500 cases, you know, way back in uh, 2000. And I would, you know, be very concerned about if you're going to make uh, introduce a label from a new region, you better have some street creds mm-hmm. because there's so many new labels popping up. And I just wonder, you know, what the consumers are looking for, reliable namesakes People have been making it for quite a while and have their um, their style dialed in. You can, you know, we've been, we've coined the phrase undeniably Aubert. Mm-hmm. So when you taste our wines, it's undeniably our style. It's been that way for 25 vintages. It's been the way I've been making wine for, you know, 38 years. So my calling card is this rich, opulent. And that's hard to get across to some people. Some people want light and fruity. They want restaurant wines, you know. We just try to dial in our niche and, and keep doing the same thing. As you say, the, the category might be kind of leveling off on its trajectory, but there's still room to go. What determines a single vineyard bottling for you if you're looking for a new place to go? And 
Do you think there's enough single vineyard bottlings or there's not enough single vineyard bottlings? Because it's also the way that people are figuring out where the terroir is and where the best spots are. I, I would say there's never going to be enough single vineyard bottlings. Mm-hmm. As long as the winemaker recognizes that um, it's not only his hand in the in the style, it needs to have the style from the soils, from the from the climate of the region. We discovered many years ago that uh, where vineyards are located on these hilltops, sides of slopes, valley floor, they get influenced by so many different things. And one of the things we noticed was prevailing winds and what we call garrique, the things that blow in from the forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our Pinot Noirs, uh, the UVSL Pinot, has bays and tan oaks and these wonderful grasses and flowers that they blow all of their pollen and oils into the vineyard. And it had, some of the blocks have this very distinctive garrique, which I think is part of the terroir, which is part of the, the greatness. When you've got a site that you want to work with, clonal material or vine selection material is a big part of the process. You've got two that you really love, basically Calera and, and a Von Romane right. suitcase clone. What comes first in this kind of chicken or egg thing? Do you say the site is going to make good wine, so now I just want this expression from this vine material? Or do you say this vine material needs something specific to show what it has best? Well, for us, I'm glad you asked that because we're working on a new project right now up on the Occidental Road, just like a two miles from the town of Occidental. Mm-hmm. And we found this site because it's got such a unique aspect. The ocean's about four miles away. It's got an incredible uh, natural cooling from the ocean. And so first and foremost, we uh, looked at the site, looked at its aspects, and then chose the rootstocks first. Mm-hmm. So we wanted low vigor. We have some wonderful sandstones. Uh, it's mostly gold ridge with some decomposing sandstones. It has some iron-rich content, some higher clays. So the first thing I look at is what kind of rootstock would be the best to grow on the site. Low vigor, high vigor, medium vigor. We look at the nutritional status of the soils, how deep they are. Is there any water intrusion into the soil profile? So starting with that, rootstocks. Secondly, in my bag of tricks, or my toolbox, so to speak, it's those two clones. Mm-hmm. And so then we'll just mix and match uh, where we think the Calera will work well on a, a certain rootstock and then where the VR will work well on another rootstock and pick the sites on the property that'll um, hopefully give us a single vineyard designation. Have you ever had to rejigger something after you planted it? You mean like tear it out? Well, hopefully not, <laughs> but maybe... <laughs> We've torn things out. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Hmm. We've taken out Dijon clones. We don't think they're quite what we want in California, and especially for my repertoire and my palate. Is the fuel that's in the tank for this rocket ship, is it leveling off because people are narrowing down the, the vine selections that they're using? It seems to me like there's, a, there's definitely a tendency towards heirloom clones over Dijon, and then maybe there's one or two new designer clones. Is that narrowing the bandwidth for the site expression? Yes, and I think that uh, if the sites are so special, they will, of course, trump the clonal material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want an interplay there. We want like, like maybe 80% site and 20% clone. Clones, you know, to us are just part of the big picture. We are more encouraged by uh, rootstock maturity levels. We get really excited when we see deep roots. We see minerality in the musts and the wines that are just, you know, something that I can't buy out of a, a store. Mm-hmm. I cannot, you know, there's nothing I can do in, in the, other than let Mother Nature show her stuff in our in our winemaking. Well, I like that you're still working on things and still figuring things out, even though 
you and many of your colleagues are the ones who are driving this rocket ship forward on Pinot Noir. So it's going to be a fun future. And Marco Bear, we appreciate you coming in on Straight Talk to talk about it. Thank you, James. Great segment there, James. Thank you for that. Yeah, that was a fun interview. He's a compelling individual. And with a winery in Napa, but vineyard sources in Sonoma, he has his feet in both camps. And he continues to be on the frontier of things instead of just, you know, settling back and doing what he does. He's really still pushing the envelope, and it's impressive. Speaking of frontiers, we've got Santa Barbara County's San Inez Valley up next. It was declared an ABA back in 1983, and the area is producing wines as compelling as up north in Sonoma, but with a flavor profile all its own. I would say it's widely recognized now, but still in a state of evolution at the same time. One of the driving forces for the area is Greg Brewer, whose Brewer Clifton Winery operates solely in the Santa Rita Hills, a sub-ABA of the San Inez Valley. I had a great chat with Greg, and let's listen to that interview now. Our next guest is an L.A. native and former French teacher at UC Santa Barbara who started his own winery back in 1996. And today his Pinot Noir and Chardonnay production is based solely on the Santa Rita Hills ABA down in Santa Barbara County. The winery has cracked our top 10 in our annual top 100 list and consistently been among the elite of California Pinot Noir producers. Greg Brewer, welcome to the Straight Talk Podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you on. It's your 28th vintage this year coming up at Brewer Clifton, and you had a few years before that you were working as an intern. You've essentially grown up in the Santa Barbara wine community and been one of its drivers, um, so congratulations on that. But Thank why don't you. you just locate Santa Barbara and the Santa Rita Hills ABA for our listeners, and then tell us what it is about Santa Rita Hills terroir that makes it such a distinctive area for Pinot. Of course. Yeah, Santa Barbara is, is misunderstood in, in, in some ways in that when you're in the town of Santa Barbara, you're facing south on the Pacific. And people think about resorts and it's very gentle and, you know, walking on the beach and holding hands and picnics and everything else, which is totally the case. When you travel kind of up the coast, however, to where wine country is and where Santa Rita Hills is located, it's still the ocean, obviously, but it's a, a different voice of the Pacific. It's, it's, not, um, it's not quite as calm. It's a little more savage. It's a little more kind of ferocious and carnal up there around Point Conception, it's called. So we have cold Alaska water, and very atypically, our valley is oriented east to west, right? So it's, it's almost like a mouth, kind of respiring and breathing in that ocean influence day in and day out, the fog, the cooling, and everything else. So, you know, the immediate knee-jerk is, oh, Santa Barbara, it's warm, it's resort, it's great, but actually it's a lot cooler and more contemplative and moody in a lot of ways um, because of that orientation and because of the voice of the Pacific up there. When we toured the vineyards down there last summer, you and I, I remember we were looking at some of your, uh, your vines, and you said when you plant for the first time, you always think single vineyard. Now, there's a proliferation of single vineyard bottlings out there, and you do several. Talk about that process and what is it that goes into not only just picking the piece of land, but thinking this is going to be a single vineyard, and does it always work out? Yeah, so it's interesting. In, in the single vineyard world, there are different approaches. You know, in our case, it's really this kind of, you know, neutral representation of what's there, kind of almost irrespective of the outcome, right? It's not about, you know, oh, let's taste through and assess and see if this merits that type of singularity. It's more trusting that it will offer its own singular voice. And so when we elect to plant a piece of land, like knowing that it will contribute something different. It's, it's very much like different instruments in an, in an orchestra or different voices in a choir. Like each one brings something to the equation. And it's not about better, worse, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not about that. It, it's just, it's individual, right? And so that's really, that's the motivation for us. And there's, you know, it's a relatively small appellation, California standards wise. It's about eight miles long, four miles tall. But within that, there's such... 
such a difference in kind of the voice of the wine because of the aspect, the orientation towards the sea, the soil profile. You know, it's all very beachy and, and lunar in a lot of ways. And, and the wines are so expressive. And when we plant, you know, it, the differentiation of place is also sometimes amplified by us, by different clonal selections and that, that type of thing to kind of to further kind of embolden the difference of site as well. What, what are the differences as you run east to west through the valley? Are there soil changes? Is it temperature change? What are the sort of the defining characteristics when you're looking around for vineyard sites there? Well, it's interesting. In general, you know, the, the further you are from the ocean, we typically climb almost a full degree Fahrenheit for every mile, um, which is quite significant. So that's that's the general kind of starting point in the Appalachian. And then in Santa Rita, there are two corridors that, that come off the ocean. There's one along what's called Santa Rosa Road and the other, which is my normal habitat, called Highway 246. And, you know, one side has a bit more kind of like sandy clay loam and that type of thing in the soil. Where we are, it's almost like a high plain behind the hills. It's a little bit lighter. It's a lot of beach sand blown over from Lompoc. So, you know, but again, it, it's all about how exposed and vulnerable you are to the wind, right? So if you're kind of nestled in behind a little ridge or something, it, it can get a touch warmer. But if you're like straight up, like facing the ocean and, and kind of facing the West, it's, you know, the, the cold and the wind is, is no joke out there. And are you in a specific sector that you like to concentrate on or do you spread your stuff out? Well, a little bit of both. You know, we spread ourselves out, but there, there are common things that have been the most attractive to us as far as sight. So because the environment is so hostile, ultimately, you know, we, we do look for little tiny pockets within that have a modicum of protection. And it's something actually I read um, from Helen Turley 20 plus years ago, I think, about, you know, extreme Sonoma Coast or like these very extreme places. There's a point where you can be too extreme, <laughs> where right. stuff just doesn't ripen. And especially because we employ stems and different stuff we do, you know, the clusters need to be intact. You know, they can't be too beaten up. Otherwise, it can go too far. So kind of nestled in little kind of little pockets within the extremity is always the most attractive for us. You mentioned stems there, and I want to talk about that with you because you use them and you use neutral oak, which is an interesting combination. Generally, when I talk to folks about Pinot, I say that the opposite ends of the spectrum are the very bracing kind of minerally savory style wines that you get from the cool coastal climate areas. And then the, the richer fruit driven ones that you would get from the warmer sites. But I feel like your wines kind of straddle that. Am I accurate or are you trying to find a midpoint or what is it in your approach of using stems, neutral oak, and your wines are very expressive that you're aiming for? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a huge compliment. So for us, you know, the employment of stems has always been part of our vernacular, right, from the very, very beginning. And, and I think for us, you know, Santa Rita Pinot has a tendency to be very kind of big and lush and curvy in a different way from Russian River. I mean, you know, everything has its own thing. But it, it, there's a lot of kind of succulent fruit that's there. And a lot of colleagues de-stem the wine and, and the wines are beautiful. They're dramatic. They're dark. They're brooding. They're amazing. And that's one potential aesthetic that's, that's kind of there for the taking in Santa Rita Hill. The stem participation for us is a means of, of corseting some of that generosity. It kind of it corrals it, it frames it. And so, you know, it's almost like for me, anything that's round and rich in life, like, you know, it's like a sear on a jumbo scallop or a piece of ahi or a little brush of soy on, you know, on a piece of nigiri in a sushi bar, it frames something that's softer and rounder, right? So the stems kind of lift the fruit, they brighten the fruit, there's a little spiciness aromatically. And then the mouthfeel of the wine is substantiated by the stem. 
stems. The architecture is a derivative of the stems. And so that's really what we're doing. And then, you know, to eschew the employment of New Oak is just our, our style as well. You know, that I love, again, New Oak is awesome. It can lift. It, it, it too can kind of frame and corset mm-hmm. the fruit, right? right. Um, but for us, we're kind of arriving at that, if you will, from within our own system, from what the stems are bringing to the table. And then the neutrality of vessel, it just has always resonated with us. You know, and so our normal barrel age is like 15 to 25 years old. I mean, there are barrels that we're using now that, that held our 96 and 97 and 98. Mm-hmm. And there's almost a sentimental attachment that comes with time. Sure, you know, it's like yeah. a musician with an old instrument or right. a writer with an old pen or typewriter. You know, it's, there's intimacy with that. That I, I think, you know, it doesn't contribute immediately, obviously, to the wine. It doesn't get more neutral. Right. But there's a sentimental connection that shouldn't be overlooked, I don't think, either. As someone who has a typewriter and has been in many cellars <laughs> with old wood, I, I totally get... <laughs> Where you're coming from on that. Greg Brewer, Brewer Clifton Wines, 28 vintages in, 22 to go, and then you can go back to the tasting room. That's right. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, that's right. Parties, tours, the whole thing. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Another great interview, James. If only we had room in this episode for the whole thing. Hey, Rob, that is a great idea. We've got bonus episode content dropping today, and it's the full Greg Burr interview. Okay. We discussed more about clones and stems and new oak versus neutral oak. We talked about the sale of his winery to Jackson Family Estates and how he sees the Pinot category today and then some. You can hear every word of the full interview with Greg Brewer for free right here on Wine Spectator Street Talk Podcast. But before anyone heads off to listen to that, stick around as Rob and Dr. Vinny explore the world of clones. Here we go. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Hi, Dr. Vinny. Hey, Rob. How you doing? We have another special edition of the Ask Dr. Vinny mailbag today, because today our question is from me. <laughs> okay, Rob. Let's let's hear it. As you're probably aware, I get a lot of James time, and James sure loves talking about clones. Dr. Vinny, what is he talking about? Uh, Rob, he's a huge fan of Star Wars. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's talking about. No? Okay. Well, then he's probably talking about vine cuttings. So let me just back up a little bit. So if you take a cutting or a bud of uh, mother plants, and I'm doing the air quotes, technically it's considered a clone, which means it's genetically identical to its mom. A more general term might be vine selection. And this is kind of cool. So unlike other plants, vines actually self-pollinate. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So that means they also easily mutate as they are adapting to the environment. So there's a lot of clones for every type of wine grape, but no grapes clones have received more attention than Star Wars. I mean, Pinot Noir. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So actually, there are more than a thousand documented clones of Pinot Noir. And because... The differences can vary between each clone and the flavor profiles they produce can also vary. So there's a lot of um, interest from winemakers about which clone they're going to work with. So let's back up a minute and explain why there are so many clones of Pinot Noir. Okay, so so Pinot Noir comes from France. It's it's indigenous to France. Pinot Noir does not come from California. <laughs> so we have to kind of back up hundreds and hundreds of years. And there was some vine disease, including phylloxera, that wiped out vineyards. So then cuttings of these vinifera grapes were grafted onto American rootstock for new plantings. You, you following along, Rob, so far? USA! 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 <laughs> 
<laughs> right? So there was a huge demand, as you might imagine, during this time because so many vines were decimated. And some of the vines were healthier than others, and some had virus resistance. So growers wanted reliability, as you might imagine. So they were looking for grapevines that were virus-free, that ripened easily, and produced the most fruit. And then they made their clonal selection ba- based on those qualities. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, as things evolve, and they did, more recently, wine producers were producing quality over quantity, And those things can be mutually exclusive. We've also heard a lot about heirloom clones. Now, when I think of an heirloom tomato, my mind conjures something that looks very different from regular tomato. What does an heirloom grape look like? Well, they don't look that different, Rob. Just a little funnier. (laughs) I just want to be clear that heirloom is referring to a family of vine selections. And those vine selections have evolved from what are known as suitcase clones. So grapevines that were smuggled not quite legally into the U.S. during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Oh, you have to tell me more about clone smuggling. Yeah, absolutely. So as as you probably imagine, most countries, including the United States, have strict restrictions on importing plant material. And so imported vine cuttings have to be quarantined for as long as five to seven years in the U.S. before they can be certified disease-free and released for propagation. But some vintners kind of bypassed this. I imagine they were impatient. So they flew to France and borrowed, I guess, cuttings from top vineyards in Burgundy and other regions, packed the cuttings into their suitcase, flew them home and planted them completely bypassing the quarantine process. You sometimes hear them referred to as suitcase clones or even Samsonite clones, if you remember the uh, luggage company from the 80s. Of course. I've also heard stories about people getting through customs by sticking that vine material down their underwear, but don't quote me on that. Hard pass. Yeah. (laughs) So this practice of smuggling clones into the U.S. exposed the U.S. to some vine diseases, but The good news is that many of those illegal suitcase clones have gone on to produce high-quality clones of their own. And as we talked about before, you know, as a vine gets older, it adapts, and then some of those selections are then propagated because vintners wanted a particular quality or two. And that's why we refer, or James refers to them as heirloom clones. It's kind of that idea that uh, they're being passed down from generation to generation because of their qualities that people admire. Dr. Vinny, I knew you could solve my clone problem. (laughs) Well, uh, you're very welcome, Rob, and I'm glad you didn't have to watch a Star Wars movie. Hey, doesn't George Lucas make Pinot Noir? He does make Pinot Noir. We should find out what George Lucas's Pinot Noir clone is. May the force be with you, Dr. Vinny. For more of the doctor's free advice, check out her weekly Q&A at Wine Spectator's website or email your questions straight to us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Woohoo! Thanks, Rob. Yeah, thanks for that explanation along with Dr. Vinny, Rob. I think the the clonal material and and the vine selection is something really, really important to the diversity of Pinot in California these days, and it's something consumers should be aware of. So good job there in bringing that to them. Well, I've enjoyed this journey into the world of clones. Our next episode is heading even farther into unknown territory. We're covering whiskey for wine lovers, and I have a feeling that I, for one, am probably going to learn a lot. But until then, our listeners can email us their questions or just drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
James, take us home with a sneak peek wine pick. I have to give a shout out to Santa Barbara as I just finished a little Pinot Noir road trip through there in early August. And it's the Sanford Pinot Noir Santa Rita Hills 2021. Uh, this wine rated 92 points. It's only 45 bucks, and there's 5,000 plus cases of it, so you're going to be able to find it. And I'm recommending it because it's a textbook example of the ABA. It's got this pure, brisk edge style with sleek, tangy pomegranate and blood orange notes that add some zippy fervor. But then as it opens up in the glass, you get more Kirsch and Linzer notes, all backed by a minerally edge on the finish. It's also built to cellar a little bit. You'll be able to find it easily, as I said, from one of the pioneering wineries of the area. The Sanford Pinot Noir Santa Rita Hills 2021 is my sneak peek wine pick. Zippy fervor. You heard it here first. Zippy. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. Don't forget the full Greg Brewer interview that is separate bonus content available now. We'll see you next time for episode 13. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.